Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. This is Parshat Ekev, and as I mentioned, there's a few things in this week's Parsha that are that are known to most people. One is Ve'achalta Vesavata Uverachta, which is the idea that you eat something and you are satiated by that something and then you bless that something. As as probably all of you know, we also say a blessing before we eat. That's not exactly what the Torah is getting at, but by, you know, is it the transitive property? Whatever. There's a mathematical property that if you do it at the end, you're probably going to do it at the beginning as well. Math was not my, uh, I became a rabbi, so I didn't have to do math. But the idea that you that you bless something even if you're not satiated, right? That's that's the question that that our rabbis ask, and that many modern day uh, thinkers also ask, right? What if you are eating something you don't like? Does that mean that you're satiated, right? Well, probably because it still fills your belly. All the Torah is worried about in that moment is that you've eaten something and that it brings you life and nutrients. Well, when we say most often it's in Birkat Amazon, which probably most of you know, we only say if we've eaten bread. So in today's day, when we're not eating bread with every meal or people are gluten free or what have you, do you say that you've been satiated? Well, yeah, of course. Of course, you've been satiated by a meal, even if there's not bread. But when the Torah was written and when our rabbis commented on this line, meat and bread were really the two things that they believed brought you the most satiation, right? That, that satisfied you most, both new and nutrients, but also, uh, in, in hunger. We're not talking about that. <laughs> I just wanted to bring that up. The second, the second thing that you might know from this week's parsha is the second paragraph of the Shema, which is brought up, uh, right after Rick started le- reading. It's a few verses later and it is a problematic, Paragraph. And the next time you read the Shema, you can read that paragraph and see it is, it's very conditional. If we do good things for you, God, then our lives will be good. And if we don't do good things for you, God, then our lives will be bad. It's not really the way that we engage with God anymore. Um, however, it is a theological understanding for the way in which we had relationship with God over time that we did wonderful things. We praised God for things. We then got great land. We stayed safe, et cetera, et cetera. And vice versa. If we weren't, if we did not believe in God, for example, Moshe is a great example, right? Moshe hits the rock amongst many other things that he does uh, that he was told not to do. And then he's told he can't go into the land, right? So there are punishments directly from God in that particular case of something you haven't done and so then God uh, gives you some kind of punishment or at least lack of reward. Again, we're not talking about that today. This is the third piece that I believe people know not necessarily by verse, but just by concept. So this is chapter 11, verse 22. And you'll see there's lots of verses on here. In fact, some people, probably many people who are on Zoom right now, were on this sheet while I was still editing it. And I kept chatting the people on the sheet saying, I'm not done. I'm not done. Don't print it yet. Cause I had like five pages verse, uh, of verses of commentaries, uh, on this one very small verse, because there is a lot, there are a lot of questions around what this verse means and also 
not just pshat, not just simple, basic level, what does it mean? But what does it mean for us? Where does it, where does it put us in our own, uh, in our own narrative with God? So the verse is, so I have to move it closer to my face. Ki'im shamor tishmerun. Even if you don't know Hebrew, you've now heard the same word twice. Ki'im shamor tishmerun. The root shin memresh shamor is being used here in two different ways. Et kol ha-mitzvah hazot asher anochim etzave etchem la'asota. Le'ahava et Adonai Elohechem la'lechet bechol drachav u'ledav kabo. Okay. So if you surely keep or surely guard or guard so that you can guard kol of these, a kol of these, all of this mitzvah, kol meaning all, which is why I made that mistake, all of this particular mitzvah that I have given to you, that I've commanded to you to do, to love your God, to walk in God's ways, and this word here, the uh, JPS translation is to hold fast to, but it's actually the same word that we use for, does anybody know? A school supply? Glue. glue. <laughs> to glue yourself to God, to cleave to God is how we would say that probably outside of the classroom, right? So to love God, to walk in God's ways, and to cleave yourself to God. So before we go into any of the commentaries, which I'm sure you've all already glanced at at least a little bit, I'm curious to know what are your questions about this that that the commentators might might answer? What are some thoughts you have about this particular line? Yeah, Joanna, who's on Zoom. So James, can you unmute Joanna? Great. So the verse says, um, you know, that if you observe this one, all of this one mitzvah, but then there were three things that are specified, loving God, walking in God's ways and cleaving or holding fast to God. So are those three things all part of one and the same mitzvah or they're the three separate things? How do those, how do those listed items relate to call mitzvah? Beautiful. Beautiful. Everybody understand the question. Okay, great. Any, there's one more person on Zoom, but anybody in, in live sanctuary mode that would like to ask a question? Yeah, right. Great. Great. So that actually, that piggybacks on Joanna's comment, right? That why Rick said, why do you need the word kol at all, right? If it's just going to say et hamitzvah hazot, which is singular in form, though, as Joanna pointed out, it could just be overarching, right? An umbrella for all three of these things. What does kol hamitzvah really mean? It's kind of bizarre, both Hebrew and English, because all of the mitzvah, like what, what does it mean to observe all of the mitzvah? Yes. You can keep your mask on. Yeah. Right, right. It could mean each mitzvah. Great. So it's being translated here as kol, meaning all, all of it, but you're right that it could mean each mitzvah. Then it also is problematic specifically in English because each of this mitzvah, right, is, is silly, silly grammar, but you're exactly correct. Stevie, did you want to say something? Yeah. 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 Yeah, great. So Stevie brings up a very interesting point that based on context, it seems like a bizarre placement of this verse because it could have gone earlier on in our canon where we heard a little bit more of this type of context around God and our relationship to God based on God's attributes. And so now why is it, 
Why is it being said here? It's possible it's being said here because of the second paragraph of the Shema, which I referenced a few moments ago. But as Stevie's saying, it, it really could have gone elsewhere. Why, why did it need to go right here? And the commentators are not going to go into that so much, but it's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very good, a very good question. Tybal, and then we'll see if there's anybody else in the room. James will unmute you. She's the one with the hand up. Okay. We'll take someone in the room first, and then if Tybal can unmute, we'll hear from her. Any other? Oh, sorry. Rabbi Marsha. Yeah. 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 Great. So Rabbi Marsha Tilchin was bringing up a another place where the same root, Shamor, is being used Again, twice, but in a different, um, a di- both a different conjugation, but also in a, in a different, um, it's singular versus plural. And like, why, why is this phrase consistently being used in the way in which we are supposed to have that relationship with God? And if I can just add words to what she said, uh, why, why does it change, right? Why does it change from singular to plural? And why is that verb being used uh, multiple times? Taibo, are you there? Yes. Great. Thank, thanking James for unmuting. I looked fast, and you don't have this other text there, but if there's time, I want to hear you, Rabbi Schatz, on the difference between what's translated in the English, though this font is giving my aging eyes a little trouble reading the Hebrew, Sorry. walking in all God's ways, and the Micha 6, 8, yeah. Yeah, yeah. walking humbly in God's Great. ways. The all versus beautiful, beautiful. So yeah, so there's um there's a line in Micha that's actually at the end of the alternative version for the prayer for our country, um, that says that you will walk humbly in God's ways, and that um and that that seems to be a very similar a very a very similar um understanding or very similar connection to this. And as we know, this is from Torah and that's from um, Navim. So it's possible that it came from that. What it, what it says in Micha is, um, uh, where did I find? oh, it's not in the Hebrew. <laughs> it's just in the English. Okay. For what does Adonai demand of you, but to act justly, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So three very different things that if we wanted to, I'm sure we could drash into Loving is the same, but then walking in God's ways, bringing in that justice piece and then cleaving to God, which could be, which could be the, um, the humbly walking in God's, uh, in God's footsteps. Any other comments or questions about this verse? Okay. So let's look at some, let's look at some commentaries here. We're not going to look at all of them, uh, but I hope that you will over time look at many of them. So. Rashi does comment on this idea of Shamor Tishmerun and, and wants to know, like, why, why does it say that same root twice, right? What does it, what does it give to us? As you all know, there's, and Sandy Fields is on here and her daughter was the one who taught this to me. Rabbi Sean Fieldsmeyer always says the Torah is an economy of language. So if the Torah is an economy of language, then the fact that the same root is used twice must have some meaning to it. It's not just written there twice so that it would be fun to drash on. So Rashi says, if you shall diligently observe all these commandments, that's his translation, right? Of using shamor twice, he's saying diligently, that you should do it and then do it again. It's a, um, it's an emphasis. 
The repetition of the verb implies an admonition to be very much on one's guard, right? Not just to be on guard, but really be on guard. To be careful in respect to one's study of the Torah, that it should not be forgotten. Now, interesting that memory is not brought up at all in this verse. So Rashi is reading into this verse that to hold something, just like we say shamor and zahor in terms of Shabbat, that that also has to do with holding something so much so that you don't forget about it, that you don't forget these laws of Torah because you're holding on to them so tightly that they become yours. They don't, um, they don't fade away, so to speak. Any thoughts on that commentary? Anybody not? Yeah, Barbara. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Barbara makes a good point that there are many times in the Torah where there are verbs that are that are repeated. And and every time the rabbis wonder, why is it repeated? And often it's because of emphasis, because you want it to say not just guard, but surely guard or as Rashi says, diligently guard here. Yeah, take. Yeah. Last week's Parsha. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Neither was I. It's okay. <laughs> mm. Great. Great. You are going to agree with one of our commentaries who says exactly the same thing. And, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, like that's always Tate's role. Tate always, Tate's the modern day someone on my source sheets, most Shabbatot. Um, but th- that's exactly right. That, that whether it's based on that verse or not from earlier on in Deuteronomy, the idea that, that we should guard the way that we guard our mitzvot, that we should guard the way that we practice things based on the verse that Tate brought up, which is that you shall not add or subtract from any of those rituals or any of those commandments. They should be to you the commandments that were given to you as, as they come to you. Do you want to say something, Stevie? Uh-huh. Sure. And I think that, yeah, I think it connects very nicely to, to Tate's point, right? Because if you, if you're constantly studying how to do that guarding, you're going to do it, quote, right, uh, and make sure that you're not, you're not changing anything about it because you're diligently studying all, all of the rules that you should be following. Yeah, you go ahead. Oh, interesting. Beautiful. So maybe there is something happening around Rashi in his time that is making him worry that if people don't hold on to it, they will falter and they'll assimilate into other, um, other types of observances, other types of commandments around them. Any other? Okay. So Rashi then continues with this verse to, to say that what does it mean to walk in all of God's ways? Right means here to Rashi that if God is merciful, you should be merciful. Right? If there is a sense of rachamim, if there is a sense of mercy that God has for God's people, then we too should have that on earth. God bestows loving kindness, chesed, so then we too shall bestow loving kindness. Right? And this is a very, when we go back to Brashi, we go back to Genesis, We'll see this all over again, right? That if we're made in God's image, then of course, if God bestows these things upon the people, we too should bestow those things around, upon the people around us. Because if we're made in God's image, we are God's proverbial hand in making sure that those actions are done to others. Okay, we're going to go just because of time, we're going to go to um, to the Ramban 
who this was a very for those of you who were on the document while I was uh, while I was editing. This is a very long commentary that I took one paragraph from. It's about on on Google Docs where I was making this. It was about three and a half pages. So if you're interested in everything that he says, I'm happy to send it to you. But this is the this is the one piece that I thought was most interesting about this particular verse. So Ramban here, Nachmanides, is um, is commenting on the cleaving, right? On the gluing yourself to God. It is possible that the term cleaving includes the obligation that you remember God and God's love always, that you thought should never be separated from God when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, the verse from the Shema, to such a degree that a person during their conversation with people by mouth and tongue, their entire heart will not be with them, but instead be directed towards God. So what this is getting at is similar to what I just said about Brashi, right? That in everything that you do and in every interaction that you have, you should be even conscious, I think Nachmanides is coming out to say, of God in that interaction, of God in that moment with the other person, that everything that you say, that everything that you do shall be in in the... Um, uh, in the likeness, I guess, that God is right next to you, right? Is kind of, is glued to you like your shadow almost in the interaction that you're having. With people of such excellence, it is possible that even in their lifetime, their souls shall be bound up in the bound and the bond of life is what we say in the, in the Sidor, since their very being is a residence for the divine glory for God as the author of the book of the Kuzari alludes. Okay. So even we're going to go one step further now that not only should you believe that God is standing there next to you as a, a shadow of sorts, but that God is actually residing within you and therefore your actions and your and your words should come out as if God was saying them, doing them beside you. Gabriella, we have to un- unmute you. Okay. I- I'd like to refer uh, to the beautiful um, commentary by uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs that the Shabbat uh, bulletin refer- uh, mentioned, and I read that. And oh, great. It, I, th- I have to thank you because he's one of my big heroes. <laughs> Okay, and he mentioned that Judaism emphasizes listening to God and hearing God and having the relationship to God that he hears us, whereas the ancient world, the emphasis was on seeing, seeing statues and and so forth, and uh, that our relationship to God, it's until we reached Vekut, the the cleaving to God has many steps that we have to keep listening and listening more and listening more deeply and of course doing and then eventually we get to Vekut, which is the cleaving to God but we do it through listening and we do it through remembering and, and listening not just narrowly but but having our whole souls and our whole heart uh, listen to God. Beautiful, beautiful. And one of the um, devekut, the word that, that Gabriella used, some of you might know as devekis, 
because it's a, it's used a little bit more in the Ashkenazi pronunciation. Um, but yeah, that idea that you get to a certain point in life where you, you find almost a, a melding, um, of you being able to find that relationship with God in all the beautiful ways that Gabriella just mentioned. Uh, the Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs mentioned. <laughs> I'll have to right. read the piece. <laughs> Rabbi Susan Lemley, yeah. Um, this made me think about um, a work that I increasingly appreciate, which is Buber's I Am Thou. Yeah, sure. And this notion, the way I tend to put it, is the idea that in every human interaction, with uh, that is an I-Thou interaction, there's a kind of echo of the great I-Thou relationship mm. that each individual has with God. Mm. It's Beautiful. such, I find it such a powerful and in a way helpful idea. Yeah. But it also makes me think about the, it's a thin line because if you're with an, I find if I'm with another person or another person and I'm really trying to listen and be with them in a I thou way, which isn't so easy. If I get preoccupied or drift off or start looking at whether it's good or whether it's God or whether it's larger, you could lose track of the concrete individual in front of you. So I think this notion that when you're relating to other people, you should be thinking about God is a very thin line. And I think it's, I think it's better really, or at least I find it better to be just focusing on the person and let the, let the echo, let God kind of take care of God's self. You know, it will happen. Yeah, and I think yeah, that the, the, the ideal, there you go. I think that the ideal is that we, we wouldn't necessarily be even thinking about God in those moments, because I agree with you that it's a very, it's a very fine line that now you're not paying attention to the person, you're paying attention to your own, your own godliness, and that's, that it's not the point. Um, but that you would be so connected. You would have such, as Gabriela said, devacus. You would have such devacut, such, uh, connection to God that, that you have now practiced behaviors and practiced, um, yeah, behaviors and communication skills almost that in a relationship with another person that hopefully is that I am thou experience that it comes through even without you having to think about it. I think that's the, that's the ultimate, but you're right that until we get there, it's very, it's a very tricky boundary to, um, to, to stand on one or the other side of. Jeff, your hand has been up for a while, both virtually and physically. There you go. Virtually, because I just learned how to do that. So. Oh, Mazalto. Thank you. Welcome. So <laughs> it struck me when you were talking earlier, the word coal yeah. and the use of the verb roots twice yeah. may have to do with not just performing or keeping the commandments or the instructions, but to make sure that you do it with the right intention. Beautiful. The Kavanah, it's not enough to just, for example, light candles on, on Friday night. If you don't have the, the real intention that goes with it, then you're not keeping the instructions. You're not following in God's way. 
Great, great. So because of that comment and Tate's comment earlier, um, I'm gonna we're gonna go straight to the Orachim, which is on the back of your page if you're in the room with me. And if you're online, it's on page two, the first commentary on page two. This is from the Orachim, who I think might be the most well, other than the Rabbi Schneer Zalman, the, he's he's the most modern of our commentators this morning. And again, this is this was a very long commentary that I took bits and pieces of, but we're going to read the beginning of it. Another thing Moses may have had in mind when repeating the words, the words Shamor Tishmerun, is that one should not only be concerned with personally observing the commandments, but should also encourage others to keep them. So it takes what Jeff just said even one step further, right? That you're not just personally just doing lighting the candles because you know you're supposed to, but now you've found meaning in why you're lighting those candles. The intention, the kavanah is there differently. And so now you're actually getting others to perform those rituals because you find meaning in them, because you find some connection to them. I actually, just because Kelsey's in the room, I'll share this, that when I speak with, uh, with conversion students, and we're trying to, you know, get get experiences under their belt. One of the things that I often say is you can't just one day decide that you're going to keep kosher. You have to go down a journey of keeping kosher, because if all of a sudden you're just one day you're you're keeping kosher and that's it, then five days from now, you're not going to find any meaning in it and you're just going to give it up. So the steps, the process, the finding that intention makes it something that is hopefully powerful for you. And if not, at least you know that it's not because you've experienced it. So knowing that there is that intentionality, that that kavana there, a person, a person should not say that they have done their duty by observing God's commandments and letting others worry about doing their duty. The first word shamor refers to personal observance, whereas the word tishmerun refers to ones encouraging others to do the same. And I would say back to, to Tate's point earlier, I think it's the idea that you're doing it. But then you're also doing it in such a way that it feels it it feels like it's now something, not just a checklist item, but it's actually something that you should that you should be doing because you've connected yourself to it in whatever way, or you have family rituals around it or customs or whatever. We have been taught in Psachim, which is in the Talmud, that instead of merely reading uh Deuteronomy 33, which is a different part of uh, Deuteronomy later on, Morasha, something to be transmitted by inheritance. We should also read the word as if it had been, been spelled Meursha or Meursa betrothed. Just as a person is responsible for the welfare of their bride to be or their any partner, his Erusa, his fiance in this case. So God has empowered him by means of the Torah not to let others despise the Torah without protesting this. Okay. Yevamot, another piece of Gemara, explains that the person who does not only admonish others, but demonstrates that they themselves demand of themselves, at least as much as they appear to demand of others, is liable to have an impact on their listeners. Right? If I demand of everybody at Temple Betham to do something that I'm not even willing to do myself, well, then what's the point in me telling everybody to do it just because I know that I have power of the bima? Something similar is stated in Brachot. There's a lot of Gemara here, people. Uh, there's another tractate of Gemara where the Talmud says, a truly God-fearing person will find that their listeners will respond to them. Right? This is why Moses spoke first about la'asota, about people who should do things. Because when this is the case, 
such people may plant love for God in others. So the idea of keeping something to then show others how to do it, that also means, to go back to many comments that we've heard, that you yourself have to also know why you're doing it. Just because it might bring you closer to God doesn't necessarily mean that it will. You have to find your connection to it. You need to be able to feel as though it is intentional for you. Okay, because of time, I just want to do one more, and then you can read all the rest of these um, on your own. Okay, Um, so look at the Sifre, which is Midrash on Devarim. It's the second to last uh, piece here. For if you keep, the way that they translate this is keep, keep, right? It says, Shemar Tishmaru, and you should surely keep all of this mitzvah. What is the intent of this repetition? Torah is hereby stressing that just as one must take care that their coin, their selah, not go lost, so must they take care that their learning not go lost. Okay, just like a coin is very easily just falls out of your pocket or whatever, that your Torah should not go lost. And thus it is written in Proverbs. If you search for it, if you search for the Torah, like silver, just as it is difficult to acquire silver, so it is difficult to acquire the words of Torah. Torah shouldn't be something that's just easily gained, right? You shouldn't shouldn't just read this and think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, moving on. It should be something that you want to learn, that you want to dive into, that you want to that you want to look more deeply at because that is how you acquire it. That is how you come to have relationship with it. But perhaps just as it is difficult to lose silver, so it is difficult to lose Torah. It is therefore written gold and fine glass cannot be compared to it. It is as difficult to acquire the words of Torah as gold and as easy to lose them as vessels of So there's no like pretty bow to put on this. There's not one takeaway from this from these teachings, but what I hope you gain and what I hope I can continue to gain from this particular verse is that there are three things here, right? Loving God, walking in God's ways, and finding that deep connection, that deep, almost um, singular relationship that you find by cleaving to God. And each one of those things is a way in. Now, The goal is that you do all of them, but I think that each is actually a step, that if you learn Torah, you're one step closer. If you do the rituals that are meaningful to you, you're that next step closer. And then if you find that personal relationship, whether it's through meditation or davening or teaching or experiencing, that you then find that dveikis, (laughs) you find that, that, that cleaving, that real singular relationship with God that is just for you, but that it's not good enough for it just to be you. And that's what I think this verse is getting at, that shamor tishmerun, that you're going to hold on to it, but you also have to put it out into the world. Again, whether that's you teaching it or you just passing it down to other generations, that the way in which people will feel this connection to religion and this connection to God later on in the world and in life is if others can show their connection and their love and their reasoning behind the things that are being done, because that hopefully will then inspire others to do these three things, to walk in God's ways, to love God and to find personal relationship. Mm -hmm. 
You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.